Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow uh, at the Center for a New American uh, Security. He is part of the crack Russia team at CNA. Uh, he is also one of the world's leading experts uh, on not just the Russian military, but unmanned systems worldwide. Uh, Sam, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program each week to give us an update on this important war. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be back. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, which with Safran is sponsoring our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual uh, meeting uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Sam, talk to us a little bit about the Ukrainian uh, strike that... Uh, uh, damaged the Kerch Bridge that connects Russia and Crimea. Vladimir Putin uh, is uh, vowing reprisals. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the impact, the implications, uh, and where nature of the conflict is changing or not. Well, this was a significant strike. Um, I'll just say up front, I'm not an expert on construction or on bridges, but with all the public information that was available, all the videos, all the photographs taken of the damaged bridge, uh, we could see that the damage was extensive. At the same time, the bridge really wasn't taken out altogether. In fact, uh, transport across the bridge, traffic across the bridge uh, resumed after some time. Uh, obviously for the Russians, this is a major black eye. It is a major PR disaster. This bridge serves as one of the biggest testaments to Russian gains in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, this was a very expensive endeavor. It, it was open to great fanfare when the bridge became operational. And of course, it serves as a significant transportation link that connects Russia to Crimea. And a lot of civilian and military traffic goes across the bridge on a daily basis. So any damage, any delay to this traffic pattern can have consequences. Uh, but again, just looking at the images, the damage wasn't extensive enough for the bridge to stop its operations. In fact, the operations have resumed. Um, there's uh, civilian traffic that's going across the lanes that were not damaged. The rail traffic is expected to resume as well. But again, this is a very significant public disaster on probably the par with the sinking of the Moskva cruiser, that a very significant Russian asset has been damaged to, uh, to a major extent. But again, it didn't stop the operation of the bridge and it didn't necessarily stop the traffic. Russians said they're going to use ferries to route military and some civilian traffic across the strait. And because this was such a major public strike, President Putin launched uh, cruise missile and uh, long range drone strikes against Ukrainian civilian targets all across the country. And so all of Ukraine's main cities have been hit, Kiev, Kharkiv, Dnepr, Zaporozhye, as far west as Lviv on the border with Poland. And how extensive have these uh, strikes been? I mean, there was a sense that 
the Russians were husbanding their long-range strike assets. They were, uh, you know, not expending uh, as uh, launching as many missiles. Uh, you know, I mean, as as Putin sort of put it, the reprisals. Is the Russian response different than it's been in the past? I think the difference here is that this is a rather extensive response, and it targets uh, sites all across the country. At the same time, most of those sites hit were civilian. So Ukraine's civilian infrastructure, its electricity, its, uh, its power grid, its internet and communications grids have been struck. So this damage is not just um, any military effort that is part of the, uh, or is built on the civilian infrastructure, it actually targets civilians specifically. Uh, and this was basically probably, I would say this was probably months in the making in the sense that Many Russian commentators, pundits, nationalists, and military, both in Russia and those on the ground in Ukraine, were calling for Russia to respond harshly to any Ukrainian escalation by striking Ukrainian infrastructure to make it difficult for civilians and the military to move across the country. Um, there were calls to attack bridges and, again, um, energy grid as well. So this is probably um, a way to placate those voices to let the nationalists and, um, and a very significant war party in Russia know that Russia is in fact capable of causing harm and damage to the Ukrainian industry, military, and the civilians. And it also serves to let the people in Russia know that strikes like those on the Kerch Bridge, which are very public, will not go unanswered. Uh, this is very much a drone war. You've been helping us understand that uh, from the very beginning. Uh, but commercial uh, products like uh, those from DJI are being used by uh, both sides. Uh, but you also mentioned that there is a wide assortment of Iranian drones uh, that the Russians also are using, um, just as the Ukrainians have been using Turkish Bayraktars, for example. Um, how is what's the what's the latest uh, news on that? Because you were tweeting on it over the weekend. Well, that's correct. In fact, the Ukrainian president has acknowledged that the strikes against Kiev were carried out by long-range missiles, as well as Shahed-136 lowering munitions, which are flying under the Russian name Geran-2 or Geranium-2. These drones can fly low and slow. They are often difficult to sight, and they are difficult to, um, to track. Uh, they can overwhelm air defenses so that at least one of these drones can sneak past uh, such defenses. Ukrainians have been able to change their tactics and concepts to track these drones. They are loud. They could be heard before they're seen. Uh, Ukrainians are trying to understand how uh, Russians are piloting them uh, above the ground. They don't fly very high. Um, that way they can hide from early warning radars. And, and so there's uh, a lot of kind of uh, push and pull happening as Russians are learning how to uh, navigate across or around Ukrainian defenses. Ukrainians are learning how to track and shoot down these drones, but they can fly long distances. They can fly for many hundreds of kilometers. And so some of those may have penetrated Ukrainian air defenses around Kiev to strike targets, which is a significant development because Kiev is located uh, a significant distance from Russia proper, uh, but also from, from Belarus proper. So these drones may have been launched either from Russia or from, or from Belarus. And so this is a very significant threat elevation, which has been recognized by the Ukrainian military. It's been recognized by the Ukrainian president. And it calls for better air defenses, better early warning radars, better electronic warfare systems. 
that could interdict these drones. They're not very complicated as far as their electronics goes. And so they use uh, civilian style GPS to hone in and fly to target, right. which means they're cheap to manufacture. In fact, some Ukrainian experts estimated that each drone could be as little as $20,000 to manufacture, meaning potentially hundreds of these could be assembled or manufactured from civilian components, which Russia has and which Iran obviously has as well. Uh, so Shahed-136 slash Geraint-2 represents a significant uh, elevation or a significant escalation in, uh, in drone use across Ukraine. It isn't going to be a game changer. It may not stop Ukrainian advance around Kherson, may not stop Ukrainian operations around um, uh, Kharkiv region and the Donbass, but it could cause significant damage. It could cause significant attrition within the Ukrainian military, which is why they are recognizing that this is in fact a threat. And then of course, uh, both sides and Russians especially are using civilian DJI drones, the Mavic series, even more so, because these uh, civilian, cheap, expendable drones prove to be very successful as tactical short-range UAVs for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, target recognition, combat operations, and psychological information operations as well. In fact, one of the uh, uh, high-level Russian generals, uh, retired uh, now, uh, General Balievsky, recognized that DJI drones became a symbol of modern warfare and these drones are elevating artillery to the level not seen since World War One. Of course, that's his specific statement, but it is a testament to the fact that civilian technology, when matched correctly with military technologies, can be highly effective. And uh, Russian telegram channels are continuing to fundraise for these DJI drones, along with right. now fundraising for uh, thermal uh, wear as both sides are preparing that the fight will continue into the winter. Let me uh, ask you one last question. Uh, the president used the term uh, Armageddon. There was a, a concern, um, you know, not wanting the war to escalate. There was a concern uh, that the conflict could turn nuclear. There were some who were saying that this is even more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. What's your sense? What is the Russian commentary on, and what's the uh, the analysis community saying about the likelihood of that? You know, this sense that Putin is being cornered, uh, he'll he'll lash out. Uh, don't don't think it'll just be one weapon. It, it may be more weapons. Uh, and then others saying that, look, I mean, he's been saber rattling and threatening this since before the conflict. Uh, and uh, the, the threats continue. And he knows that, you know, he's, you know, that doing that would be very problematic and is not going to get anybody to back down. What's 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 you know, what are what are your source, sources? How is your team? Uh, and, and those uh, in Russia and who study it, what's their sense on, on that element? For many people in Russia, for many nationalists, uh, the calls for a nuclear strike against Ukraine um, is not new. In fact, uh, a lot of voices have been calling for such an escalation for quite some time to show Ukrainians how serious Russia is and to maybe uh, permanently damage Ukrainian military war effort. But for the Russian analysis community here in the United States and elsewhere, such use of tactical nuclear weapons appears unlikely. In fact, uh, some are saying that if the, if the Kerch bridge was completely destroyed and damaged, irreparably so, which uh, would have pushed its repair um, well into the next year, then perhaps this could have been a cause for such a tactical escalation because such a high profile Russian target would have been damaged permanently. The fact that the bridge was not damaged permanently, the fact that 
it is slowing down but isn't ultimately stopping Russian traffic across the bridge isn't a cause for Putin to escalate up much. Of course, he understands that a nuclear escalation carries significant risks with it as well for him, for his country, and for the world at large, and not just for Ukraine proper. Uh, so it is difficult to estimate what he's thinking right now, but many uh, rational voices are estimating that a nuclear weapon is unlikely to be used at this point in time. There are a lot of different ways the Russians can respond. One of them is through cyber means, obviously, Russian-speaking uh, hackers saying that they're They've knocked down informational websites for some of America's biggest airports, although no uh, disruptions in operations were reported this, uh, according to uh, a CNN report that just flashed up. Uh, Sam, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Hope you have a great day, uh, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Byron. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Uh, and we are doing this uh, live and in person to get his look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind at the Association of the United States Army's 2022 uh, annual meeting. Byron? Pleasure doing this in person again. And great to see you live and in person in Washington, D.C., Vago. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it was just at AFA. We saw each other uh, last. I want to start where we often do uh, in these conversations, which is uh, ask you about your thoughts uh, on Russia's war on Ukraine. Obviously, uh, you know, we heard from Sam Bendet at the top, uh, top of the program about the Ukrainian strike on the Kerch Bridge and the reprisals uh, that Russia has been doing, striking all over, indiscriminately striking all over Ukraine. What are some of the incremental thoughts you have as you're looking at this? Well, I think the first one is they've not run out of ballistic missiles. Um, I don't know what exactly these strike weapons were. Some of them were, were cruise missiles. Some of them were, may have been Iskander. Some of them may have been old Atachkas. But uh, they still have magazine depth left. And I think that's important to keep in mind for the length and duration of the show. It also shows that their defense industry has not been thrown on its back by export controls. You're going to need microelectronics, energetics for these weapons. They're getting them from somewhere. So um, as much as the sanctions and export controls have probably crimped some, some aspects of the Russian defense industry, the strikes uh, that took place in Ukraine suggest they still have a capacity that we ought to be aware of. Uh, and uh, Sam mentioned uh, how Iranian drones, for example, are being used uh, to great effect on the on the Russian side. Um, and and your expectation, as you've discussed before, is right. The Russians are going to use this as a pause, re recharge manpower, right? So this doesn't end anytime soon. Yeah, I'm working on something that's really just trying to think through what does Russia look like in 2024 to 2028, you know, with, without, with or without a victory. I don't think they're going to win in Ukraine, but um, this could go on for quite some time. Uh, it could be something like the Arab-Israeli conflicts where there's a hot war, you know, a couple of years of, of relative peace, uh, both sides rearm, and then they go at it again. So. In the context, particularly of AUSA, I just think it's going to be important to think about what does Russia look like over this time period. I think, you know, maybe the more optimistic scenarios that somehow Putin is defeated in Ukraine and the Russian government, his regime falls. Um, you know, I still think it's a very low probability that you would see a new government arise that would embrace the West and toss all of what Putin believed out the window. A large international, uh, many international delegations here, a flagship event, a lot of German officers, uh, Swedes, Finns, obviously because they're going to be joining uh, NATO. Um, you know, what are some sort of international themes? Because you, you wrote a little bit on recharging magazines, spending patterns and the like. 
Well, I think, and you're going to add the Israelis and the Koreans here too, uh, they're, they're in force. But I think, um, you know, what I wrote about this week was just this simple fact. It's an observation as far as sell-side consensus estimates for European and U.S. defense contractors. You've seen some pretty significant step-ups in the sales estimates in 2024 and 2025 for the European contractors. Whereas for the U.S. contractors, and these are the large publicly traded companies, they're, they're up or down one or two percent. So you haven't seen this same conviction that uh, U.S. companies are going to benefit from a growth standpoint to the same extent that European companies are. And I just find that very curious. Um, on one level, you know, it could just be that analysts are waiting for management to provide guidance. Um, so we may have to wait a little while for that. It could be that they're skeptical because of the potential outcome of the midterm elections that we're going to once again hit gridlock. Um, it could be maybe their own assessments about what's going on and you know how that Russia-Ukraine war plays out and where, whether some of this export uh, demand actually dries up. But they certainly haven't reflected that in European defense estimates, where you know you've seen some really significant changes in growth expectations in 2024, 2025 for Henshold, BAE Systems, Rheinmetall, Saab Group, uh, Talis, uh, the, the large European public, publicly traded companies. And, and why is it that we're not seeing, you know, if, if you talk to um, senior army officials and military officials, they say we're moving, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in order to try to uh, address these uh, depleting inventories. On the other hand, you talk to companies and they're like, well, how many contracts do we have? Handfuls of them. How, how long before you think it starts to be reflected in actual cash well, exchanging well, I think, hands? Yeah, I think it, it's really, come on, it's gonna, it's gonna be a 20, this is a long cycle business in a lot of ways. It should be a lot shorter cycle given the, the international demand that we're seeing and you know, whatever balloons could go up in the Pacific as well too. I mean, I, we, we radically have to compress our time scale for when we're trying to get things done. Um, but realistically, you know, I, I would expect to see it show up in company financials in 2024 and 2025. The shorter cycle stuff, maybe some of it in 2023, but you know, we're in October already. Uh, we, we're sitting with a potential lengthy CR or CRs. Um, the FY24 budget isn't going to get done until you know October at the earliest, uh, probably in 2023. So. Um, we'll see. Are, are you still bullish on the prognosis for defense, especially with the latest debt uh, figures that were put out and the fact that, um, you, you know, we heard from Michael Hurston, if Democrats are smart, they'll pass a really high debt ceiling increase yeah. uh, after the election. Uh, otherwise, you could end up with a Budget Control Act fiasco again. Are you still bullish? Do you think there's going to be more growth? I from a global standpoint, yes. I think you're going to have to pick your spots. Um, probably as time has you know, marched on, I'm probably a little, I'm incre incrementally a bit more concerned about U.S. contractors and how they're going to fit in all this and re really where the U.S. defense budget's going to go. But if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on, you know, we, we've got the 20th Party Congress uh, next week finishing up in China. What happens after that's completed? We're just in a very, uh, a very different global security environment, and maybe if the U.S. Uh, can't, you know, push higher numbers through, certainly countries like Poland, Finland, other uh, Asian countries, other European countries, I think we'll step up and spend more. 
Speaking of uh, a, a changing uh, security environment, uh, it began with uh, the killing of a young Iranian woman, uh, and now demonstrations are rampant. Uh, you just uh, told me a, a bit of news that I didn't uh, hadn't heard because we were walking the floor here at uh, AUSA. Uh, where the oil unions turned against the regime as well. Uh, what, is, what does this tell us about? Well, I think what it's, it really suggests, I mean, there were a couple of events last week uh, that, you know, Iranian women talking about how the comp compulsory hijab demonstrations, really, you know, as one person pointed out, there are kind of three pillars uh, of, of the regime in Iran, and it's death to America, death to Israel, and compulsory hijab. So I wonder if that... If that third pillar starts to waver, and the regime really is challenged on something that um, you know they've been able to crush demonstrations before uh, fairly brutally, um, the fact that this one continues to spread, um, I think, is significant. Now, what does it mean for defense? I don't know yet. I mean, I wrote. I'm kind of ambivalent because I really haven't figured out how to translate this into is it better or worse for security if it's just you're entering kind of a, a gender apartheid that's existed in Iran. Um, does that necessarily change the whole focus and nature of the regime? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. But it, it is raised the, the possibility of more instability in a part of the world and, and maybe a lashing out by a government that could also uh, feel itself under siege. So um, how this plays through, I, I'm just conscious of it and I think people ought to be watching it. And, also trying to think through what the implications might be for defense. And uh, and obviously, right, the entire region then goes goes with it, right? Benign Iran could change spending patterns in the Gulf, more dangerous, unstable yeah, this whole, Iran. This whole, you know, one of, the, one of the theories that, you know, the reasons the Saudis and uh, some of the Gulf states had backed Russia on, uh, you know, cutting OPEC oil production was because uh, you know, it was kind of, well, they're, they're still angry at the Biden administration for not taking a harder stance on Iran. It's like, be careful what you wish for. You know, um, I think uh, that underlying Saudi-Iranian tension is going to be there. That rivalry is not going to go away anytime soon either. And how that plays through, also important. The OPEC decision, what impact do you think it's going to have uh, on, uh, again, inflation, right? We use these products um, for, you know, plat you know what I mean? It's, it goes just beyond energy for the sake of energy. Well, it's we're back to the midterm elections and how inflation, you know, if gas, you know, in the, the neck of the world that I'm in, in the Northeast, you know, you start seeing gas prices are back down, you know, $3.60, $3.70. If they're back to 4 or $5 in midterm time, maybe beyond, uh, that that could help shape the outcome of the midterm election. And like I said, I, th I think we're headed to a, you know, the consensus is it's going to be split party control again, and that'll lead to more gridlock and not a lot of things happening, which some people feel is good. I don't think it's good. And uh, aside from AUSA, uh, what should people be paying attention to this week? Um, there's a uh, two kind of back-to-back -back satellite conferences in Silicon Valley this week. One is kind of a Milsatcom focus uh, towards the end of the week. Um, there are also a couple of think tank events. Um, Rusi was doing something on Russia and the, uh, the impact of the war on the global economy. 
there, there are a couple of CSIS, Hudson Institute also had some space related and kind of geopolitical events as well too. And I, I'm sure they're going to be more pop-ups just on what's going on in Iran and also in Russia and Ukraine. Byron, thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure. And I also wanted to let the audience know and let you know that we won uh, the Defense Media Award for Best Digital uh, Submission. It's the second time we've been so honored. Uh, we want to thank the judges, uh, thank our sponsors, thank our guests, uh, and also uh, thank our great uh, team that makes the mag magic happen every uh, single day. And I really appreciate it, Byron. We wouldn't be here where we are without your sage advice, counsel, and thoughts. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be part of it, and congratulations to you and Chris.